8. Combativeness, selfishness, irritability, and exaggerate the influence of the animal organs. Intemperance results in disputes, fights, brawls, and murders the legitimate consequences of which are misunderstandings, suits at law, criminal proceedings, imprisonment, and the gallows. It island therefore, evident that the ultimate tendencies of these faculties are tyrannical, cruel, violent, and atrocious. They are opposed to the noble, moral faculties faith, love, and devotion and, whenever temptation inordinately allures, the course of life is likely to be characterized by dishonorable, deceptive, and treacherous conduct. The pangs of hunger cause soldiers to act more like ravenous beasts, than rational beings. It is animal instinct which impels the soldier to seek first for the gratification of his appetite. Some persons, instigated by carnivorous desires, yearn for raw meat, and will not be satisfied unless their food is flavored with the flesh of animals. Their bodies increase and thrive, even to a repletion. Contrast these individuals with pale, lean, anemic people, who crave in articles of diet, and eat soft stones, slate, chalk, blue clay, and soft coal. Such perversions of the appetite are manifested only when there is either a diminution in the volume of blood, deficient alimentation, defective assimilation, or a general depravity of the nutritive functions. Morbid conditions generate vitiating tendencies and destroy the natural appetite. While alcoholic stimulants affect the medulla oblongata principally, opium acts chiefly on the cerebrum, and excites reverie, dreamy ideality, optical delusions, and the creative powers of the imagination, some of these hallucinations are said to be grotesquely beautiful and enjoyable. The effects of this agent differ from those of alcoholic intoxication by not deadening the moral sensibilities, or arousing the animal propensities. Opium smokers are dreamy and abstracted not quarrelsome or violent, those who use ardent spirits lose their moral delicacy, their intellect becomes dull, the reason cloudy, and the judgment is overruled by appetite, it is conceded that the trophic center is principally in the medulla oblongata, the cerebellum and lower cerebral ganglia, however, favorably influence the nutritive functions, and, when these organs are large and active, a plethoric condition is the natural consequence. Redundancy of blood in the body indicates preponderance of the basilar organs, these faculties being vehement in character, and excessive animal characteristics produces those conditions which result in acute and inflammatory diseases. We may express these conditions of the system as follows, the animal faculties correspond to the lower instinctive manifestations, acquisitiveness, the elements of character are selfishness, combativeness they tend to turbulence, crying, alimentation. They relate especially to the secretion, functions of nutrition, reproduction, vitality. A large development of them plethora, indicates hyperemia congestion. These naturally give rise to the following diseases, inflammation, rheumatism, gout, convulsions, etc. Which, in these conditions, pursue a violent course, region of feebleness. Although the middle lobe of the cerebrum, at the base of the brain, does not denote decided force of character or energy of constitution, yet it has a certain sphere of normal action which is essential to the harmony of mind and body, if this region is largely developed, the constitution is languid, inefficient, sensitive, and abnormally disposed, but if it be deficient, the volative energies preponderate, and there is a lack of those susceptibilities of constitution, which prevent excessive waste, the cerebral faculties are fear, anxiety, sensibility, servility, relaxation, and melancholy. 
and their excessive predominance indicates a weak, vacillating, irresolute character, and the existence of those bodily conditions which produce general excitability and chronic derangement. A full development of this portion of the brain indicates that the person is naturally dependent, inferior, and subservient to stronger characters, such a one is fearful, fretful, complaining, irritable, dejected, morose, and, sooner or later, becomes a fit subject for chronic disease, the ultimate result of excessive fear, excitability, and irritability, is functional or organic derangement, the morbid conditions represented by the word disease, the medulla oblongata and portions of the middle lobe of the brain, the functions of which represent excitability, anxiety, fear, and irritability symbols of physical profligacy, are located just between the ears see figure 60. Inferior animals distinguished for breadth between the ears are not only cunning and treacherous, but very excitable and irritable. The head of the fox is remarkable for its extreme width at the region of fear. He is proverbially crafty and treacherous, always excitable, and so variable in temper that he can never be trusted. He is a very timid thief, exceedingly suspicious, irregular in habits, and frequently driven by hunger into mischievous depredations. The organ of alimentiveness located directly in front of the ear, indicates the functional conditions of the stomach, which, when aroused by excessive hunger, exerts a debasing influence upon this and all of the adjacent organs, and is demoralizing to both body and mind. In obedience to the instinct of hunger, children will slyly plunder gardens and orchards, displaying profligate, if not reckless tendencies in the gratification of the appetite. In this regional division we include the medulla, the posterior and middle portions of which give rise to the pneumogastric nerve. This nerve receives branches from the spinal accessory, facial, hypoglossal, and the anterior trunks of the first and second cervical, and its filaments are distributed to the lungs, stomach, liver, spleen, pancreas, and gallbladder. See figure 60. With explanation its agency is necessary to maintain the circulation, and the respiration, since, as the medium of communication, it conveys from the brain large supplies of nervous force to sustain these vital functions. It likewise instantly reports the impressions of these physiological processes to the brain, and especially to those parts which, by analogy of functions, it likewise instantly reports the impressions of these physiological processes of the brain, and especially to those parts which, by analogy of functions, are intimately related to the stomach. Hence, we observe that the conditions of the stomach give rise to a reflex impulses, which involuntarily excite the animal faculties to the gratification of the appetite. That the stomach has an intimate connection with the rest of the organism is evident from the fact that when it is inflamed the body is completely prostrate. We have already alluded to the perverting tendencies of alcoholic stimulants. Their peculiar influence upon the cerebellum causes the subject to reel and stagger, as though a portion of that organ were removed. The group of energetic faculties is stupefied, and mental as well as corporeal lethargy is the result. The reaction, which inevitably follows, is almost unbearable, and relief is sought by repeating and increasing the poisonous draughts, the primary influence of which is stimulating, the ulterior, depressing, alcoholic stimulants and duly excite the nervous centers, the heart, and the arteries, and, consequently, the blood is carried to the surface of the body where it counteracts the influence of cold and exposure, the frequent attendance upon drunkenness, the use of alcoholic beverages perverts the appetite, interrupts habits of industry and destroys all force of character, pecuniary, physical, 
and mental ruin. Therefore, are sure to follow as the consequences of habitual, alcoholic intoxication, that ordinary alimentation, which includes the process of digestion, the subsequent vital changes involved in the conversion of food into blood, and its final transformation into tissue, causes mental languor and dullness, as well as bodily exhaustion, is attested by universal experience, a torpid condition of the liver, one of the most inveterate of chronic derangements, is indicated by sullenness, melancholy, despondency, loss of interest in the affairs of life, sluggishness, etc. and the ultimate tendency of this morbid state is towards suicide, a broad and deep development of the middle lobe of the brain, shown by a fullness under the chin, and of the adjacent portion of the neck, denotes tendencies to somnambulism, delirium, and insanity, if such characteristics of the organization do not culminate in mental derangement, they exhibit childishness, helplessness, and great dependence, age abates the vigor of the executive faculties, and old people manifest not only bodily infirmities, but the relaxing and enfeebling influences proceeding from the lower portions of the brain, they totter about in their second childhood, mentally and physically enervated, those who become dissipated by the use of intoxicating beverages are not only weak, trifling, and foolish, but walk with an unsteadiness which betrays their condition, these illustrations show that this part of the brain is destitute of energy, diseases of the digestive organs also indicate it, cholera, whether induced by invisible animalcules in the air, or in water, takes the root of the alimentary canal, opens the vital gates, and myriads of victims are swept down to death, it proves remarkably fatal to those having the cerebral conformation, perhaps enough has been said to indicate the relaxing and enfeebling tendencies of this region of the brain, they may be classified as follows, region of feebleness, servility, cautiousness, fear, cerebral functions, anxiety, sensibility, cunning, pyrophilogiaceae, adioliniaceae, physiological conditions exciditabiolidae, and tendencies, relaxation, feebleness, disease, this classification shows their tendencies to chronic disease, functional derangement, insanity, and suicide, general considerations, before the structure of the brain was understood, Buffon spoke of it as a mucous substance of no great importance, its functional significance was so slightly appreciated that some people hardly suspected they had any brains, until an accident revealed their existence. Latterly, however, it is generally understood that the perfection of an animal depends upon the number and the development of the organs controlled by the nervous system, the sovereign power of which is symbolized by a grand cerebrum, the throne of reason, that animal which is so low in the scale of organization as to resemble a vegetable belongs to an ascending series ending in man, the lowest species have no conscious perception, and their movements do not necessarily indicate sensation or volition, instinct culminates in the articulates, especially in insects, while created intelligence reaches its acne in man, the highest representative of the vertebrates, all things by regular degrees arise from mere existence unto a life, from life to intellectual power, and each degree has its peculiar necessary stamp, Cognizable in forms distinct and lines, elaviator, man, in the faculties of mind, possesses more than a complement for instinct, some of the lower animals, however, seem to share his rational nature, and to a certain degree become responsible to him, finally, the manifestations of mind bear a relation to the development of cerebral substance, and to the bodily organization which supplies the brain with blood, figure 76 shows the relative amount of brain matter in the lower animals, 
compared with that of man, the peculiarities of each agreeing with its cerebral conformation. It is easier to measure the capacity of skulls in different races than to procure and weigh their brains. The following table has been published. Cranial capacity of human races. Race. Cubic inches. Swedes. 100.00 Anglo-Saxons. 96.60 Finns. 95.00 Anglo-Americans. 94.30 Esquimo. 86.32 North American Indians. 84.00 Native Africans. 83.70 Mexicans, 81.70 American Negroes, 80.80 Peruvians and Hogtots, 75.30 Australians, 75.00 Gorilla, Adult, 34.50 Idiot, 22.57 Mr. Davis, of England, having a collection of about 1800 cranial specimens obtained from different quarters of the globe, ascertained the relative volume of brain in different races. By filling the skulls with dry sand, he found that the European averaged 92 cubic inches, the Oceanic 89, the Asiatic 88, the African 86, the Australian 81. Dr. Morton, of Philadelphia, had a collection of over 1,000 skulls, and his conclusions were that the Caucasian brain is the largest, the Mongolian next in size, the Malay and American Indian smaller, and the Ethiopian smallest of all. The average weight of brain, in 278 euros, was 49.50 ounces in 24 white American soldiers, 52.06 ounces indicating a greater average for the American brain, ounces the brain of Cuvier, the celebrated naturalist, weighed 64.33 Ruloff, the murderer and linguist, 59.00 Dr. Spurgeon phrenologist, 55.06 celebrated philologist, 47.90 celebrated mineralogist, 43.24 holster, 40.91 the weight of the human brain varies from 40 to 70 ounces, that of idiots from 12 to 36 40 ounces, the average of 273 male European brains was 491 2 ounces while that of 191 females was 44 ounces, if we compare the weight of the female brain with that of the body, the ratio is found to be as 1 colon 36.46, while that of the male is as 1 colon 36.50, showing that, relatively, the female brain is the larger. It appears that neither the absolute nor relative size of the cerebrum, but the amount of gray matter which it contains, is the criterion of mental power. Although a large cerebrum is generally indicative of more gray matter than a small one, yet it is ascertained that the gray substance depends upon the number and depth of the convolutions of the brain, and the deeper its fissures, the more abundant is this tissue, it is the substance which is the source of thought, while the white portion only transmits impressions, we do not wish to underrate any attempt heretofore made to classify the functions of mind and assign to them an appropriate nomenclature, it is not unusual for scientists to give advice to phrenologists and point out the fallacies of their system, but it is hardly worthwhile to indulge in destructive criticism unless something better is offered, as the day has passed for ridiculing endeavors to understand and interpret the physiology of the brain. The all-important question island not whether phrenologists have properly located and rightly earned all the faculties of mind, but have their expositions been full in the development of truth, while endeavoring to connect each mental power with a local habitation in the brain. The system of phrenology may be chargeable with some incongruous classification of the faculties and yet it has furnished an analysis of the mind which has been of incalculable service to writers upon mental philosophy.
phrenology, in popularizing its views, has interested thousands in their own organizations and powers, who would otherwise have remained indifferent, it has called attention to mental and bodily unities, has served as a guide to explain the physical and psychical characteristics of individuals, and has been instrumental in applying physiological and hygienic principles to the habits of life, thus rendering a service for which the world is greatly indebted, Samuel George Morton, MD whose eminent abilities and scholarship are unquestionable, employs the following language, the importance of the brain as the seat of the faculties of the mind, is preeminent in the animal economy, hence, the ability with which its structure and functions have been studied in our time, for, although much remains to be explained, much has certainly been accomplished, we have reason to believe, not only that the brain is the center of the whole series of mental manifestations, but that its several parts are so many organs, each one of which performs its peculiar and distinctive office, but the number, locality, and functions of these several organs are far from being determined, nor should this uncertainty surprise us, when we reflect on the slow and devious process by which mankind has arrived at some of the simplest physiological truths, and the difficulties that environ all inquiries into the nature of the organic functions. Illustration, Figure 77, Side View of the Brain of a Cat a crucial sulcus dividing anterior convolutions, b fissure of sylvies, c olfactory bulb, we may here allude to the recent experimental researches with reference to the functions of various portions of the brain, prosecuted by Dr. Ferrier, of England, he applied the electric current to different parts of the cortical substance of the cerebrum in lower animals which had been rendered insensible by chloroform, and by it could call forth muscular actions expressive of ideas and emotions, thus, in a cat, the application of the electrodes at point 2, figure 77, caused elevation of the shoulder and a ductilon of the limb, exactly as when a cat strikes a ball with its paw, at point 4, corrugation of the left eyebrow, and the drawing inward and downward of the left ear, when applied at point 5, the animal exhibited signs of pain, screamed, and kicked with both hind legs, especially the left at the same time turned its head around and looked behind in an astonished manner, that point six, clutching movement of the left paw, with protrusion of the claws, that point thirteen, twitching backward of the left ear, and rotation of the head to the left and slightly upward, as if the animal were listening, that point seventeen, restlessness, opening of the mouth, and long continued cries as if of rage or pain, that a point on the underside of the hemisphere, not shown in this figure, the animal started up, threw back its head, opened its eyes widely, lashed its tail, panted, screamed and spit as if in furious rage, and at point twenty, sudden contraction of the muscles of the front of the chest and neck, and of the depressor's muscles of the lower jaw, with panting movements, the movements of the paws were drawn inward by stimulating the region between points one, two, and six, those of the eyelids and face were excited between seven and eight, the side movements of the head and ear in the region between points 9 and 14, and the movements of the mouth, tongue and jaws, with certain associated movements of the neck, being localized in the convolutions bordering on the fissure of Sylvie's B which marks the division between the anterior and middle lobes of the cerebrum. Dr. Ferrier made similar experiments on dogs, rabbits, and monkeys. The series of experiments made on the brain of the monkey is said to be the most remarkable and interesting not only because of the variety of movements and distinctly expressive character of this animal, but on account of the close conformity which the simple arrangement of the convolutions of its brain bears to their more complex disposition in the human cerebrum.
it is premature to say what import we shall attach to these experiments, but they have established the correctness of the doctrine, advanced on page 105, that thought, the product of cerebral functions, is a class of reflex actions, the cerebrum is not only the source of ideas but also of those company-ordinate movements which correspond to and accompany these ideas, certain cerebral changes call forth mental states and muscular movements which are mutually responsive, they indicate that various functions are automatic, or dependent upon the will, and, as we have seen, experiments indicate that the electric current, when applied to the cerebrum, excites involuntary reflex action. We cannot say how far these experimental results justify the phrenological classification of the faculties of mind, by establishing a causative relation between the physical and psychical states. This short and insatisfactory account furnishes one fact which seems to support the claim of such a relation, the apparent similarity between the motor center of the lips and tongue in lower animals, and that portion of the human cerebrum in which disease is so often found to be associated with aphasia, or loss of voice. While these experiments are by no means conclusive in establishing a theory, yet they favor it. It is wonderful that nervous matter can be so arranged as not only to connect the various organs of the body, but at the same time to be the agent of sensation, thought, and emotion. It is amazing, that a ray of light, after traversing a distance of area code 91000000 miles, can, by falling upon the retina, and acting as a stimulus, not only produce a contraction of the pupil, but excite thoughts which analyze that ray, instantly spanning the infinitude of trackless space, the same penetrative faculties, with equal facility can quickly and surely discern the morbid symptoms of body and mind, become familiar with the indications of disease, and classify them scientifically among the phenomena of nature. The symptoms of disease which follow certain conditions as regularly as do the signs of development, and mind itself is no exception to this uniformity of nature. Thoughts result from conditions, and manifest them as evidently as the falling of rain illustrates the effect of gravity. The perceptive and highest emotive faculties of man depend upon this simple, but marvelously endowed nervous substance, which blends the higher spiritual with the lower physical functions. The functions of the body are performed by separate organs, distinguished by peculiar characteristics. To elucidate the distinctions between dissimilar mental faculties, we have assigned their functions, with characteristic names, to different regions of the head, as they unquestionably influence the bodily organs. We are sustained by physical analogy, in our classification, our knowledge of the structure and functions of the nervous system is yet elementary, and we are patiently waiting for scientists to develop its facts, and verify them by experimental investigations and such researches as time alone can bring to perfection, while real progress moves with slow and measured footsteps, the inspirations of consciousness and the inferences of logic prepare the popular mind for cerebral analysis. No true system can contradict the facts of our inner experience, it can only furnish a more complete explanation of their relation to the bodily organs. It should be expected that such careful and painstaking experiments, as are necessary to establish a science, will be preceded by intuitive judgments and accredited observations, which may be, for a time, the substitutes of those more abstruse in detail. We have, in accordance with popular usage, treated the organs of thought as having anatomical relations. The views which we have presented in this chapter may seem speculative, but the facts suggesting the theory demand attention, and we have attempted to gather a few of the scattered fragments and arrange them in some order, 
rather than leave them to uncertainty and greater mystery. It is by method and classification that we are enabled to apply our knowledge to practical purposes, possibly, to some, especially the non-professional, an allusion to the fact that cerebral physiology contributes to successful results in the practice of medicine, may seem to be an exaggerated pretension. None, however, who are conversant with the facts connected with the author's experience, will so regard this practical reference for the statement might be greatly amplified without exceeding the bounds of truth. Physicians generally undervalue the nervous functions, and overlook the importance of the brain as an indicator of the conditions of the physical system, because they are not sufficiently familiar with its influence over the bodily functions. Pathological conditions are faithfully represented by the thoughts, and words, when used to describe symptoms, become the symbols of feelings which arise from disease. How few physicians there are who can interpret the thoughts, and glean, from the expressions and sentences of a letter, a correct idea of the morbid conditions which the writer wishes to portray. Each malady, as well as every temperament, has its characteristics, and both require careful and critical analysis before subjecting the patient to the influence of remedial agents. In a treatise by Drive J.R. Buchanan, entitled Outlines of Lectures on the Neurological System of Anthropology, are presented original ideas preeminently full to the physician, his researches, and those of later writers, together with our own investigations, have greatly increased our professional knowledge. It is by such studies and investigations that we have been prepared to interpret, with greater facility, the indications of disease, and diagnose accurately from symptoms, which had acquired a deeper significance by the light of cerebral physiology. We are enabled to adapt remedies to constitutions and their varying conditions, with a fidelity and scientific precision which has rendered our success in treatment widely known and generally acknowledged. We annually treat thousands of invalids whom we have never beheld, and relieve them of their ailments. This has been accomplished chiefly through correspondence, when patients have failed to delineate their symptoms currently, or have given an obscure account of their ailments. We have been materially assisted in ascertaining the character of the disease by photographs of the subjects. The cerebral conformation indicates the predisposition of the patient, and enables us to estimate the strength of his recuperative energies. Thus we had a valuable guide in the selection of remedies particularly sweet to different constitutions. In the treatment of chronic diseases, the success attending our efforts has been widely appreciated, not only in this, but in other countries where civilization, refinement, luxurious habits, and effeminating customs, prevail. This fact is mentioned, not only as an illustration of the personal benefits actually derived from a thorough knowledge of the nervous system, but to show how generally and extensively these advantages have been shared by others. A careful study of cerebral physiology leads us deeper into the mysteries of the human constitution, and to the philosophical contemplation of the relations of mind and body. Self-culture implies not only a knowledge of the powers of the mind, but also how to direct and use them for its own improvement, and he who has the key to self-knowledge, can unlock the mysteries of human nature and be eminently serviceable to the world's for centuries the mind has been spreading out its treasury of revelations, to be turned to practical account, in ascertaining the constitution, and determining better methods of treating disease, since comparative anatomists and physiologists have revealed the structure of animals and the functions of their organs, from the lowest protozoan to the highest vertebrate, the physician may avail himself of this knowledge, and thus gain a deeper insight into the structure and physiology of man, an intimate acquaintance with the physical, 
is a necessary preparation for the study of the psychical life, for it leads to the understanding of their mutual relations and reactions, both in health and disease, consciousness, or the knowledge of sensations and mental operations, has been variously defined, it is employed as a collective term to express all the psychical states, and is the power by which the soul knows its own existence, it is the immediate knowledge of any object whatever, and seems to comprise, in its broadest signification, both matter and mind, for all objects are inseparable from the cognizance of them, hence, the significance of the terms, subjective consciousness and objective consciousness, people are better satisfied with their knowledge of matter than with their conceptions of the nature of mind, the nature of mind, since this subject is being discussed by our most distinguished scientists, we will conclude this chapter with an extract from a lecture delivered by Professor Bert G. Wilder, at the American Institute, there now remains to be disposed of, in some way, the question as to the nature and reality of mind, which was rather evaded at the commencement of the lecture, the reason was, that I am forced to differ widely from the two great physiologists whom I have so often quoted this evening, most people, following in part early instruction, in part revelation, in part spiritual manifestations, and in part trusting to their own consciousness, hold that the human mind is a spiritual substance which is associated with the body during the life of the latter in this world, and which remains in existence after the death of the body, and forms the spiritual clothing or embodiment of the immortal soul, and that the individual, therefore, lives after death as a spirit in the human form, that of the spiritual man, the soul is the essential being, of which may be predicted a good or evil nature, while the mind, which clothes it as a body, consists of the spiritual substances, affections, and thoughts, which were cherished and formed during the natural life, together with the above convictions respecting themselves, most people, when thinking independently of theological sublimations, feel willing to admit that animals have, in common with man, fewer or more natural affections and thoughts which make up their minds, but that the inner and immortal soul, which would retain them as part of an individual after death of the body, is not possessed by the beasts that perish, in short, the vast majority of mankind, when thinking quietly, and especially in seasons of bereavement, feel well assured of the real and substantial existence of the human mind, independently of its temporary association with the perishable body, but in antagonism to the simple and comforting faith, stand theological incomprehensibilities on the one hand, and scientific skepticism on the other, the former would have us believe that the soul is a mere vapor, a cloud of something ethereal, of which can be expected nothing.